Revelation chapter 22. We are blessed to live in a nation where we have wonderful freedom and liberty to meet tonight, as we do many Sunday evenings and Sundays and Wednesdays um, around God's Word and listen to it and receive the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and affirm our faith in Him alone before others freely without any fear of um, reprisal, without any fear of torment, without any uh, fear of imprisonment, anything like that. Um, I've always wondered uh, what uh, I've pondered before what it must be like uh, to be faced with a decision uh, to... Uh, either uh, deny your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, live and be given physical life or to be faced with a decision to deny your faith in Jesus Christ or, or, uh, or to affirm your faith in Jesus Christ and die and be faced with death. We, as believers in 2018, are not faced with that reality. That's at least not in this part of the world. There are believers in many parts of the world that are facing persecution like that. But in our neck of the woods, what you and I face is a worldliness that is continually pressing in from without uh, and seeking to conform us to the image of this world and uh, to entice us away from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there's coming a day, though, that you and I are going to, we're going to see our Lord and Savior face to face. And uh, for those of us who have received Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, even though we have failed him more times than we would like to We would like to remember those of us who are found in Christ, who have run the race, who have gotten back up. Uh, he will look at us, and he will, and he will, and he will tell us, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord." And none of us will deserve it. But all of us who are saved will, will have it. Here in Revelation chapter 22, we've looked in detail at chapter 21, which is entirely about that great city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And you remember, uh, at this point in the book of Revelation, we are looking... We're, at, we're actually at the last chapter of the Bible, uh, the last chapter ever penned down. Uh, John, the beloved of Jesus Christ, is the penman. He's been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Some say that he had been boiled in oil or dipped in oil up to his neck before being exiled. He would die of old age. And the entire book of Revelation 
um, comes from that Greek word apocalypsis. We get our English word apocalypse from it. And uh, much is made about the book of Revelation about future events, right? It's prophecy, and prophecy always has a ring to it. Um, I think people gravitate toward it, toward it for some, in some ways because um, of the exciting things that take place. It's hard to believe. It almost seems imaginary. But that is not the main message of the book of Revelation. And if you learn nothing else from our study in this book, you need to know that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. There's so many books written about this, this book of Revelation, and there's so many wonderful truths in it, and there they are. It's full of wonderful, wonderful truth. Exciting things, scary things. But you remember right, right at the very beginning in chapter 1, it's introduced to us as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22, would you? John commences writing uh, what has been divided into the last chapter. It says in verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so we see this, the life of the new Jerusalem is proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. So in the midst of the river, and on either side of the river, is the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And the word healing there has the idea of health-giving. Health-giving. We're in the eternal state. So this is after the millennial reign of Christ. And, uh, and I don't want you to misunderstand that the leaves of this tree in verse 2 are for healing any kind of ills because all has been made right by this time. But it does have the idea of healing or health-giving or serving or ministering or, or uh, promoting the enjoyment of the life, the everlasting life that we'll have in the Lord. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Uh, his servants shall serve him. And I've said to you many times, and not just in our study of Revelation, but I've told you many times that for all of eternity, we will serve the Lord. And in this, in this neck of the woods here, retirement is a big deal in that, hey, we want to retire early by our time we're in our 40s and kick back and enjoy life. Um, some people maybe even have an unbiblical view of that. Others, it's within Scripture. It's you planned well, you worked hard, and you retired from that place of employment, and now you're working for everybody else, including your grandchildren, right, and your children. Um, you're very busy. But I, I want you to know something. When it comes to the Christian life, there is no retirement from the Christian life, right? You know that, don't you? There's no retirement from serving the Lord. And in our, in our physical lives, our health changes, and so how, how we can get up and how 
much endurance we have for laboring for the Lord or doing things. That changes. Life changes those sort of things. Sickness can take some of those things away. But serving God should never... You should make plans to never stop serving Him. Make some plans that way. Lord, when I can't do this anymore, I want you to show me how I can serve you in another way. I want you to show me how I can uh, accomplish your will. Lord, I want, I want you to use me for your, your honor and for your glory. And so there's going to be the serving throughout eternity. Uh, notice as we continue to read on here, verse 4, And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. We just sang a song uh, of a day is coming that we'll see him face to face. Verse 5, And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. And we've talked about that as well, about there'll be a ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to our text in verse number 6, and I'll read down uh, through verse 9. And the theme of this particular passage, what I want us to see in this section here this evening, and I think it's an emphasis in the Word of God, is the faithfulness of the word of God. Look at verse 6. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, it's almost as if the Lord Jesus interjects something into the message of the angel who's talking to John. In verse 7, the Lord interjects this. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Now, should John have done that? Look at verse 9. Then said he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. And then he gives an instruction, which really is the instruction of the entire Bible. And it certainly is the instruction of the book of Revelation. If this book is a revelation, if, if Revelations is a, is a book about the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, as King of kings and Lord of lords, then this is the message, these two words. Look at it at the end of Verse number nine, worship God. If there's anything that you and I should want to communicate to our children, the next generation, it should be this message. You should be able to sit down with your child and look him in the eyes and say, worship God. I know you, you have talents and abilities to do these things in athletics, and you have talents and abilities in this area of music and drama. And you have the ability to make money. You, you have the ability to sway people with your speaking, and you have a mind that is so analytical and able to handle all of those analytics, and you're a brilliant mind. You're a leader. You're so tender. You, you, you empathize with people. You, you could talk to our children that way. But at the end of the day, when I think of the message 
that I want to communicate to my children. It's this message. There is only one God. And this life is short. And I want you to worship God. I want you to know him. And I want you to love him. And I want you to do his will. And I want you to worship him. Look as we continue in verse 10. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Christ says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha, beginning and omega end, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches, It's meant to be preached in the churches. Do you see that? It's very obvious. Sadly, it's not often preached in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What an invitation. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. And from the things which are written in this book, he which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. That's what Jesus says. Surely I come quickly. And it's almost as if, and then he says, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's almost as if John, the beloved of Christ, interjects, Amen. May it be so. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And then he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Who was he writing to? He's writing to those churches, you remember? He's writing to you and me. Grace be to you all of our Lord Jesus Christ with you all. Amen. May it be so. And we're not going to have time to go through all of this. But I want, I want to ponder this idea tonight in the time that we have. Just verses 6 down through verse 9, I believe. About the faithful word of God. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll continue. I want to notice as we think of these, these verses, and you see it in verse 6. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. These sayings are faithful and true. Would you pray with me together before we begin? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight as we study your word. Thank you for it. Father, I thank you for how you've grabbed my attention in my study of this book. Father, I pray that you would help me to worship you alone. Help us as a church, Lord. Help us not to be an idolatrous people, full of covetousness, 
and unthankfulness. Cumbered about with hopelessness at times and defeat. Father, I pray that you'd help me to lead my family. To worship you alone. Father, I pray you do this for your honor and for your glory. Father, we look forward to the day we will stand before you. We look forward to the day where we'll serve you for all of eternity. Give us the strength we need, I pray. In this life, I ask these things in Christ's name, amen. I could ask, and I should ask the question, please pardon me tonight. Must not have got enough sleep last night. Are you going to be a part of the new, the new heaven and the new earth someday? Are you going to be a part of God's wonderful new world? When you read about and we think about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, that holy city, I hope you find yourself hungering and thirsting for it. I hope you find yourself longing to be home someday. I hope you're challenged to live your life today in a way that is preparatory for that day. I told you last Sunday night as a young person how I thought of heaven as a young person as being unbearably boring Trapped in a city with no place to go. That's how I used to think. But nothing can be further from the truth. The suspicion that heaven is an eternal bore is a reflection of our sinful nature. It's because we're sinners that we are naturally prone to think that a little sin might be more enjoyable than perfect righteousness. It's because we're sinful people that we tend to look at sinfulness or unrighteousness and think a little bit of that is pleasurable and can bring any satisfaction at all. And it really is hard for us to imagine a realm completely without sin and yet filled with endless pleasure. But that is exactly what heaven will be. We will realize at last our chief end. And that is to glorify God, to honor God, and to enjoy him forever. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. Fullness, it doesn't get any better. In thy presence, God, is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. We'll we'll rule and reign with the glorious Lord of heaven and earth forever and ever. Joy unspeakable and full of glory awaits you and me who are saved on the other shore. So we're at the book, the end of the book, right? The end of the book of the Bible. We're in uh, the Bible. We're into the book of Revelation. Most people's last words are of special interest. And in a very real way, these are God's last words to mankind. These are God's last words before centuries of silence. You can trust God's word. 
sin entered this world, you remember when Satan questioned the word of God. We talked about that this morning. And when Eve, entertaining the question, was led to doubt the accuracy of God, God's word, and to doubt the authority of God's word. And we should all take careful note of that at the very end of Scripture, God once again, as he does so many times throughout the pages of Scripture, God makes an emphasis, a point of emphasis, on the word of God. He, he emphasizes the accuracy of the word of God, and he emphasizes the authority of the word of God. I notice, first of all, in verse number 6, that the word of God is accurate. Look again at verse 6. And he writes, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. And you see this emphasis here in chapter 22, that these sayings, the sayings of the book of Revelation, but not just the book of Revelation, but the book of the entire, that is the Bible, these sayings are faithful and they're true. You can count on them. Now, again, the immediate reference is to the Revelation that we've been studying, 22 chapters, the last book of the Bible. The immediate reference is to the great truths of what we call the apocalypse, that sooner or later all of it is going to come to pass, but the statement we find in verse number 6 is broader than the words of the apocalypse, and it speaks of the entire Bible. God's word is accurate. And the truth, that is, the Bible was given by God and penned down by men, arranged and preserved exactly as God intended it to be done. In the original autographed manuscripts, every jot and tittle, every word, every letter was God-breathed. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Men may scoff at that fact. Men may deride it. Men may deny it. But God declares that his sayings, the word of God, is faithful and true. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration means God breathed. He breathed it out. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, mature, thoroughly furnished, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. The word of God is accurate. Secondly, this evening, I noticed in verses 7 and following that the word of God is authoritative. The word, of, the word of God is authoritative. Look at verse number 7. And I'll read down through verse 9. He says, Behold, and it's almost as if Christ interjects this into the message from the angel to John. Christ says, Behold, or look and see, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things, and I heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Worship God. 
The word of God is authoritative. Jeremiah 23 and verse 29 speaks of the authoritative or the authority of Scripture. It says, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 also speaks that to the fact that God's word is the authority. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So our, our thoughts and intents, the intents of our heart, the thoughts of our hearts, can take us in any myriad of directions, and yet it's the word of God that actually determines what is the truth. It, it is the standard. We cannot, or we can make, I think, three observations from the passage regarding the authority of God's word. Look again at verse number seven, and notice that the authority of the Bible is blatantly obvious. Verse number seven. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The authority of the Bible is blatantly obvious. The words of the angel give way to the direct words of Christ. Behold, I come quickly, is what he says. Christ, really, he interjects into the message and he says, I'm coming quickly. Keep the sayings of this book. What motivates you and me to live holy, God-pleasing lives? And I think he tells us in his, his pronouncement, I'm coming quickly, keep the sayings of this book. What, what motivates you and me to live a holy life? What motivates you and me to live a life, to seek to live a life that is pleasing to God? What motivates you and I to press on when we feel like giving up? What motivates you and I to, to do what is right when our flesh longs and pulls and craves to do that which is wrong? And the answer is the motivation for living a holy life or a God-pleasing life on this earth, on this sin-cursed earth, is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That is, that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. And that the eternal reward, we're going to receive an eternal reward according to how we've lived our lives on this earth. I'm going to read a portion of scripture to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one that you're probably familiar with, but I want to give you the context for just a moment. And the context is your bodies. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, okay? Now keep that in mind. Your body, your physical body, is the tabernacle or the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Okay, he goes with you wherever you go. Now with that in mind, listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 3. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he is the foundation. But you and I can build on that foundation. Verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be manifest. It'll be obvious, made known. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. 
If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, upon the foundation that is Christ, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I, I believe it was a missionary who made the statement, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And I, 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 that's a wonderful quote, it's a wonderful statement. I think it was Jim Elliott, was it, or his wife, who wrote that, I don't remember. Um, I would submit to you, though, while this life is brief, the Bible, in the book of James, refers to it as a vapor that appears for a little time and vanisheth away. I would submit to you that only, only what is done in Christ will last. In other words, if I'm saying yes to the Holy Spirit of God when I preach the Word of God, it will be to the glory of God. It'll be something that can be rewarded. Likewise, I could stand and do something that is noble in preaching the Word of God, but if I do so in my flesh, if I do it in my own strength, it's pretty worthless. It's not that someone couldn't receive Christ. It's not, some, not that some good could come out of it. But as far as this tabernacle is concerned, wood, hay, and stubble. Not much value. The same is true for every one of us. You, you may work what is called a secular job. Or maybe you are at home with your children and you're, you're training them up and Maybe you're changing diapers on little ones and cleaning and vacuuming and doing laundry. And, and I submit to you that if you are doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying yes to the Holy Spirit, it is gold, silver, and precious stone. I really believe that with all my heart. And it is to the glory and praise of God. And, and this idea... And it's not just an idea, but it is a truth. It is a faithful and true saying that Jesus gives us in verse number 7. Behold, I come quickly. You, you Don't miss this. He says, I'm coming back soon. And you need to keep the sayings of this prophecy. You need to keep the instructions of this book to be ready, to be prepared for when I return for you. And remember how much he longs for that. He prayed for it in John chapter 17. He went to prepare a place for you and for me that he can come back and, and take us to be with him for all of eternity. He longs for this day, and you and I ought to long for it as well, but you and I ought to prepare for that day. How do we know, how do we know what a God-pleasing life looks like? And the answer to that is the Word of God. That is how we know what a God-pleasing life looks like. And it isn't, it isn't uh, we don't arrive to that understanding in one sermon or the day that we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior or two sermons or three or four. I'm finding that is a lifelong pursuit of searching out the Scripture and stumbling and falling and getting off of course and then returning back on course and confessing and forsaking and Pursuing the Lord and pursuing His Word. And we grow. Isn't that what the Lord is after? 
that we would grow up into the the, the fullness, the fullness of the measure of st- and the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I ponder a couple of questions here in, in verse number 7, what motivates us to live a, a holy, God-pleasing life? The answer to that question is the motivation for living a holy and God-pleasing life on this earth is the return of Christ. And then, well, how do I know what a God-pleasing life looks like? And the answer to that is, the Word of God will be my guide. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How are we supposed to know how to live a life that pleases, pleases God? And the answer is that the steps of, a living, of living a holy life are given in God's Word. Psalm 37 and verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. He delighteth in his way. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Notice in verse number 8, I notice also the authority of the Bible is painfully disobeyed. It's obvious, but it's also sometimes disobeyed. And I believe we find that even here in this passage. And I don't mean to be overly critical of John. He's one of my favorite Bible characters. But look at verse number 8. John does something that is not appropriate, and I'm putting it mildly. The Bible says, And I, John, saw these things, and I heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Now, I think John, as he's seeing these things and he's hearing these things, is overwhelmed, we could say that, with all that he's seeing. The new Jerusalem. Many think upwards to 1,500 miles square, 1,500 miles high, gold, um, jasper, uh, walls 200 plus feet tall, new heaven, new earth, and the Lord Jesus Christ is there, and he is the lamb, and he bears the nail prints in his hands and his feet, and he's saying, behold, I come quickly. Keep the sayings that are in this book. And John is just overwhelmed. And he falls on his face before the angel. Look at verse 8. When I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Now again, I don't want to be overly critical of the apostle John, but I can't help but see that while John is receiving the revelation of God, while he is receiving the revelation of God, this revelation of the book of Revelations, he disobeys God's instruction. You might remember that once already John has been instructed not to worship the angel. Look at back to chapter 19 and verse 10. Chapter 19 and verse 10. Because here again we find the basically the very same thing. Chapter 19, chapter 19 in verse 10. He says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But John is so overwhelmed with the glory of the revelations given to him that he does it again. And it's interesting to me that John's action of bowing down before the angel has to be corrected. 
because it is entirely inappropriate. And so as we look here at the authority of the Bible, we also see that the authority of the Word of God is painfully disobeyed by John. The entire message of God's Word, and especially the message of Revelations, is that God alone is worthy of worship, that God alone is worthy of praise. The entire book of Revelation is consumed with the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Uh, is consumed with the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, the Bible says, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Look again at chapter 19 of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The authority of the word of God The message of Revelation, this book, the message of the Bible is worship God alone. Worship God alone. And over and over again I've said this building is not the church. This address is not the church. The 501c3 nonprofit status is not the church. This assembly of believers is the church. And Jesus Christ is the head. And he alone is worthy of worship. Programs come and go. Programs are organization. Organizations come and go. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is worthy. He alone is worthy of worship. Look at verse number 9, and I, I notice the authority of the Bible is our instruction to live by. The authority of the Bible is our instruction to live by. Verse number 9 of Revelation chapter 22, verse 9. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, the angels saying to John, and of thy brethren, I'm just one of your brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. I, the angels saying, I'm one who obeys this book as well. Worship God. In Matthew 4 and verse 4 reminded that the word of God is the authority by which we should live. It actually gives us life. Jesus said it. It is written. It was an Old Testament truth and a New Testament truth. It is an eternal truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. In Joshua 1 and verse 8, God encouraged Joshua's heart and he said, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Think about it day and think about it at night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. 
For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Do you think about God's word day and night? You think about God's word day and night? It's Michigan, It's March. March Madness. How many of you like college basketball? I do. When we were first married, I would have Cindy, before that, when we were dating, I'd have Cindy fill out a bracket. And then we see, that's how com- competitive I am. And now I'm competing against my... My... Uh, my girlfriend. See if I can beat her. You should have known then, right? And we would, and I, I was going to say, we, were, we would compete. No, I would compete against her. And, um, and against any friend who would fill out a bracket. But I enjoy March. I enjoy the, the basketball games, if I can catch a few of them here and there. And I enjoy, I enjoy watching them, teams that I don't know anything about players that I've never seen before. I enjoy watching the ball bounce around on a hardwood floor. I just do. Okay. Um, but whether it's basketball or whether it's chainsaws, you all don't understand that, do you? There's just something wonderful about a chainsaw. You don't get it. Hmm. The smell, it's the oil, whatever. I don't know. But you know what I've found in my own life? I can make an idol out of just about anything. I can think about it day and night. Chainsaws, basketball, ping pong tables, just about anything. What do you think about day and night? Because God told Joshua, you need to think about this day and night. And of course, it was not complete like it is today for you and for me. And you do observe to do according to all that is written therein. That's not easy. And if you'll do that, your, your way will be prosperous and you'll have good success. What is the instruction of the Bible? What is all of the word of God built toward? What is the message as it all comes down, as it's boiled down? And I'm careful to do that to the word of God. We we are and were created by God for his pleasure. To bring glory and honor and praise to him. God created us to bring him pleasure and to worship him. We were made to worship him. Do you understand that? And you may be good at a lot of things, but you were made to worship God and bring him pleasure. Worship God. Did you see how the angel of God in verse number 9 humbly takes his place with the other servants of God in the middle part? I'm just like one uh, one of the other prophets. We should be able to take careful note of how this angel of God helps to bring John back into a God-honoring sort of behavior. Did you see that? The angel reminds John of the word of God. The angel basically says, all authority is in this book. It speaks of God. It brings you to his, it brings the message that you're hearing 
should bring you to his feet, the feet of the Lord Jesus, not to my feet. I think you and I can learn from that. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 6, where you and I are commanded. If a man be overtaken in a fault, he which are spiritual restore such an one. With a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill ye the law of Christ. The angel, I, it almost seems as if he helps John get back to what he ought to be doing. You and I must never abandon the word of God. It's our rule for faith and practice. And the message of the word of God is worship God. Psalm 96 and verse 9 says worship uh, or, or Psalm 96 verse 9 speaks to that. Worship is not a slow song. I can say it this way. Worship is not a slow song. It's not a song that the choir sings. Worship is not the amount you place in the offering plate. Worship is not volunteering in children's church. These may be expressions of our worship, but they do not define what true worship really is. And I mentioned this morning a definition from one of my favorite dictionaries. Do you have a favorite dictionary? You should. One of my favorite dictionaries is Webster's 1828 Dictionaries. It was published in 1828. Okay. And you can still buy them. It's about that thick. It also comes in a digital version, right, Pastor Burden? Much easier to carry around. In case you just want to read it for fun. But listen to the definition. I think it's marvelous. And I think in our day, Christianity as a whole is missing the mark terribly. Worship is to honor with extravagant love. Worship is to honor with extreme submission. Worship is to honor with extravagant love. Those who are unsaved should look at your life and mine and go, they do what for the Lord? They do what? They're willing to give what? They're willing to give up what? For God? It really ought to be foreign to the mind of someone who's lost. The extravagance of your love and how you show that love to God. Worship is to honor with extravagant love. Worship is to honor with extreme submission. 